Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. have a, a bit of a theme developing uh, today. This morning, uh, John Ferguson very helpfully uh, led us through the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this evening, we're concerning ourselves with uh, a woman who has been described as the Bad Samaritan. So, there is the theme. We're going to look at uh, John chapter 4 and reading from uh, verse uh, 1. John 4, reading from verse 1, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left uh, Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down uh, by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And of course, you have to add six hours onto that, and you're at midday, so the six hour midday, hottest part of the day. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and made their way towards him. May God add his own blessing to this reading from his word. I wonder what the word alien suggests to you. Uh, little green men from Mars, uh, perhaps. Uh, in reality, an alien tends to be someone who feels or who is made to feel that they don't belong. Uh, today, many young people feel alienated from an older generation. Many poor feel alienated from the wealthy. Minority religions and cultures also express a profound sense of alienation. Uh, some here this evening may well have experienced a degree of alienation and know something of that awful sense of aloneness which it can produce. But that sore experience pales into insignificance when placed alongside the alienation that man experiences 
with regard to his relationship with God. It's a scary thought that God may well be holding some of us at a distance. It's nothing to do with religion or culture or social status or age or wealth, but it does have everything to do with sin. And the passage that we read together describes a woman who is very, very aware of her social estrangement. No one from her village wants to meet with her or speak with her. But her alienation from God is something that she seems to have managed conveniently to suppress in her consciousness. She sees one problem, but is blind to a far greater problem. And that was something that was about to change. As we look at these verses this evening, uh, I want us to look at, uh, first of all, what I'm going to describe as uh, a divine imperative that runs through the verses, and then say something about Jesus as a model evangelist, and finally comment on the developing response of this woman towards Jesus. So, we'll look at these in turn, the divine imperative. Recently, a famous film star was asked, uh, tell us, how did your career kick off? Oh, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. It was, I suppose, a fortunate happenstance. Or so they replied. In contrast, the woman at the well did not have a chance encounter. She did not have an accidental meeting. There is no arbitrariness in the evangelism of Jesus. Rather, there is a holy relentlessness. He is determined to bring his people home. You may remember in his Good Shepherd discourse in John 10, Jesus, speaking of the non-Jews, says, I have other sheep that are not of this penfold. I must bring them also. Do you see the imperative? I must bring them also. And that same necessity is expressed in verse 4 of our text. We read that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Indeed, some translations translated. It was necessary for him to go through Samaria. Why? Jesus was locked onto this woman like a heat-seeking missile. Francis Thompson captures something of this relentless pursuit in his powerful poem, The Hound of Heaven. Let me read a few lines from it. I fled him down the nights and down the days. 
I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter up vistas hope I sped from those strong feet that followed, followed, followed after me. Do you see the picture? God the bloodhound is relentlessly pursuing the sinner. It is a remarkable thing that Jesus does not randomly lock in upon us, but consciously seeks out individuals to bring them to himself. Let me go this evening as far as to say that it is no accident. It is no happenstance uh, that you are here in church this evening maybe invited by a friend, maybe in holiday, maybe walked in off the street. There could be a, a hundred and one reasons, but it is no accident that this evening we gather here uh, to sit under uh, the Word of God. Secondly, we see something of the divine imperative in operation, not only in the relentless targeting of Jesus, but in the unlikely subject that he targets. The encounter with this woman is placed immediately after Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in uh, John chapter 3. Now, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, he was the kind of man you would want on your board of reference. Of course he was. He was a scholar, he was a spiritual leader. He was held in high regard by the Jewish community. But this woman, she was, she was a religious mongrel. A line from the Jewish uh, prayer book of the day uh, reads as follows. Blessed are you, God, King of the universe who has not made me a Gentile or a woman. I'm not a Gentile, and I'm not a woman. Jesus knew all about this woman. She was a Gentile, she was a woman, but she was a woman of questionable virtue. Uh, we read back in chapter 2 and verse 24 that Jesus knew what was in man. All the dark secrets, as well as the open sin. And in drawing her to himself, he's, he's showcasing the grace of God in salvation. God can transform the worst of men, the off-scouring of society. Not everybody runs to Jesus to seek help with their problems. Many think of themselves as beyond help. And society will actually often reinforce that view. You're too bad for God. You are beyond the pale. God 
couldn't possibly be interested in someone like you. Well, Jesus knew the depths of this woman's moral depravity. He knows what's in man. And for some of us, that might seem terrifying. He knows all of my secret thoughts, all of my actions, many of the things that I've hidden from my nearest and dearest. He knows me through and through. But it can also be tremendously comforting. His knowledge of all the secret, murky past in my life, he knows all of that, but he still wants me. Nothing is hid from him, and he still wants me. The divine imperative, he targets, focuses, latches onto the most unlikely of individuals. Thirdly, the divine imperative in drawing this woman uh, mustn't be separated from the cost of Jesus' mission. And there was a cost to Jesus in meeting up with her, the cost to his reputation. Most Jews avoided Samaria like the plague. The Samaritans were an unclean people living in an unclean land. Traveling north from Jerusalem, the Orthodox Jew would, before he reached the border with Samaria, would cross the River Jordan and go up the eastern side of the Jordan, and when he got past Samaria, cross back over again to get in to Galilee. That would be the route. Indeed, a trip to radioactive Chernobyl was preferable to the moral contamination you would pick up in Samaria. Don't go there. To say nothing of the cultural and religious taboos that Jesus broke just by speaking with this woman. Uh, the disciples' surprise was very evident in verse 27, was it not? What is he speaking to her for? To her? A Samaritan? A woman? Goodness. And what of the personal discomfort that Jesus experienced as he waited at the well at the hottest part of the day? Why endure all of that heat? All of the villagers collected their water in the cool of the early morning, except for one woman who came at midday. And she did so, I'm sure, to avoid the cruel jibes of her neighbor. Trying for a place in the Guinness Book of Records, are we? Going for number six now. Where will it be next year or the year after? Notably, the cost of reconciling the alienated involved more than breaking cultural taboos and experiencing uh, physical distress. Uh, Paul famously in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a passage that deals with the, the reconciling work of God, describes Jesus as he who knew no sin 
was made sin for us. When you think about the language that he employs as he tries to impress upon his readers the cost of their reconciliation, the cost of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, he was made sin for us. So closely was he identified with our sin. That's the daring language that Paul uses. Unknown to this woman, the cost of reconciling her to God involved Jesus becoming what someone famously described as a human dustbin on whom our sin is emptied on the cross. So we see something of this determination of Jesus, this single-mindedness targeting this woman despite the cost that she might be reconciled to God. But think now of Jesus as the, as the uh, model evangelist in this role. What do we see? What can we learn First, we see Jesus revealing a wise sensitivity. You'll notice he doesn't begin this conversation by berating the woman for her sinful past. Instead, he finds a way to make her feel more comfortable. Doubtless, she was anxious to find a Jewish man sitting at the well, and that anxiety is dispelled in verse 9, as soon as Jesus asks for help, can you give me a drink of water? Simple as that. He asks for, uh, for some help. Step into this woman's thought process for a minute. He wants me to help him? This woman was a daily object of scorn and ridicule, and now she's given a fresh sense of dignity. Those who've been marginalized by society often need to recover a sense of self-worth. And that's happening here as soon as Jesus says, will you help me? Although this woman was notoriously immoral, Jesus, by putting her at ease and acknowledging her value, created an environment for gospel communication. He, he built, if you like, a preaching platform for the gospel. And there is something quite irresistible about the graciousness of Jesus' approach. Unwittingly, this woman began to open her mind and her heart to all that Jesus would say, just because he asked for a drink of water. I wonder if we can learn from this as we think of those that we would like to share the gospel with. Try asking them for help with something. Uh, it's very non-threatening. Uh, it breaks down all sorts of barriers. It opens up the, the road for gospel communication time and again. Second thing to note is that Jesus saw past her symptoms. So often we see the sin of others, but we fail to ask what lies behind the sin. 
what makes them behave as they do. You see, this, remember, is going through husbands like a box of discardable tissues, one after another. She's trying to satisfy a spiritual longing with a human remedy. Her trail of broken relationships was symptomatic of a fruitless attempt to fill a spiritual void. What Pascal describes as the God-shaped blank. She's trying to fill it and trying to fill it. C.S. Lewis uh, uses, I think, a very helpful analogy. He says this, God's design of man can, can be compared to a petrol combustion engine. This engine was designed to run on petrol. Try running it in water, washing up liquid or lemonade, and failure is guaranteed. Uh, we've all heard, I'm sure, of people who filled their car with diesel instead of petrol. Uh, I had a lady in my congregation many years ago who did just that and wondered why this silly car wouldn't start. Well, God has created man so that he would only function properly when the life of God, when that living water was flowing through him, designed to run on living water. And it's only when God indwells our heart that we truly begin to feel at home, discover the very purpose of our existence. Jesus, the living water, is a solution to her need. But it's a, a solution that only becomes accessible when sin is acknowledged and repented of. And so, thirdly, we see Jesus in these verses engaging in a faithful application. In verse 16, he says to her, go, call your husband. Now, immediately, her conscience is awakened. The salvation Jesus unpacks brings people into a real relationship with God, and that can't happen without an awakened sense of guilt. And, and one of the very interesting things uh, in uh, this passage is that this hitherto very talkative woman gives the briefest of replies. Uh, when women give very brief replies, you know that something's wrong. Uh, and she says, I have no husband. That's it. Nothing else. I have no husband. And... Uh, her guard is up. She wants to avoid uncomfortable exposure. But Jesus loves this woman too much to give her any wriggle room. He doesn't expose sin in order to make us squirm. He always wounds in order to heal. He exposes our sin that we might face it and discover how to deal with the very thing that would spoil our enjoyment of God. Some gospel preachers today want to tread softly on the subject of sin as they try to win others to God. Some sweep it under the carpet or they rebrand it uh, using more acceptable language. The reason they say that they don't want to 
uh, frighten off their hearers uh, is the reason given for this uh, less than accurate language of their hearer's condition. But disguising the reality and cause of a person's alienation from God can never, never secure their uh, reconciliation. Fourthly, you'll notice that our model evangelist makes a mind-blowing revelation. At the close of a theological discussion that lasts from verse 20 to 26, Jesus quite simply identifies himself as the Messiah. Uh, He says, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. And it was this revelation that brought about the woman's capitulation. Now, the detailed impact of Jesus' self-disclosure is not recorded in detail in the narrative. But I do believe we can legitimately deduce that it was life-transforming. Goodness, this woman abandoned her water jug and ran back back to the village and sought out the very people who'd made her life such a misery and said, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? I don't believe she was in any doubt about Jesus' identity. But her hearers were being invited to make that discovery for themselves. When God truly reveals himself, revelation inevitably leads to communication. The news of what God has done and revealed of himself cannot be suppressed or contained. It needs to be shared. Think of the shepherds after they found the baby Jesus in Bethlehem. They're running through the streets and saying, Jesus is here. The Messiah has come. Uh, It's impacted upon them. They can't keep silent. Now, the thing that really overwhelmed this woman, I believe, was the fact that despite knowing every detail of her sinful past, and Jesus knew it all, he still wanted to bless her. Amazing, amazing. The third thing I want to do, and with this we close, is see something of the responsive process that is going on now in the heart of this woman. And in order to do that, I want to rewind the narrative to follow the response of her heart. And the first thing I would like us to note is the way in which interest was awakened. Jesus began by exciting her curiosity. He speaks in verse 10 of living water. Now, that seemed to be a baffling offer. Uh, Jesus, he didn't even have a bucket. Where's he going to get the water from? This is what the woman is asking. It seemed baffling. Sir, you have nothing to draw with. Was he then a miracle worker, greater even than Jacob who dug dug the well. 
well, Jesus has certainly captured her attention uh, and now distinguishes between the water daily drawn from the well and the endless supply that he could provide. Now, again, try and enter the woman's thought process. No more strenuous water-carrying work in the middle of the day. Great. I'll be the only one in the village with access to Maine's water supply, a kitchen to die for. No more traveling backwards and forwards to the well for water. This is wonderful. She's hooked. She wants this water. Jesus, of course, is speaking in spiritual category, but this woman isn't thinking in spiritual categories. Uh, Remember, the Samaritans accepted only the first five books of the Old Testament, and so they had a very impoverished understanding of the, the riches of God's provision. They wouldn't get terribly excited when they read uh, Isaiah 55 and 2 because that wouldn't be a passage they would read. Uh, Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. Why spend money and what is not bread? Or labor and what does not satisfy? And so secondly, it's clear that this woman had a limited expectation of Jesus. He was claiming to be able to satisfy her deepest and greatest need, but she is hemmed in to kitchen sink mentality. She thought her problems could be solved by simply minimizing her daily physical discomforts. A kitchen tap would be just great. Sir, give me this water. But, and it is an important but, Jesus wanted much more for her than that. It is amazing the number of people out there today who want far too little from Jesus. If only I could have some financial security Or if only I could lose a bit of weight, 30 kilograms would be wonderful. Or if I had a slightly bigger house, all of that smacks of a kind of sticking plaster religion, an attempt to minimize discomfort. That's all we want, a slightly more comfortable life. If only Jesus would make life a little more bearable, that would be fine. We'll buy into that. But Jesus plans for our lives in a much more radical way than we often imagine. Uh, Again, I find this illustration from C.S. Lewis uh, uh, capturing the idea beautifully. He says, Imagine yourself living, uh, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? 
The explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. And he intends to come and to live in it himself. Thirdly, notice in this conversation that the woman experienced a growing discomfort as her conscience is awakened. Remember we said, Jesus said, go and call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. There is a not-too-subtle shift in the subject matter as she moves from the internal and the personal to the external and the controversial. What safer ground is there to stand on than having a good theological discussion? Where should God be worshipped? I've lost track of the number of times when A conversation has taken a sudden change in direction to avoid personal spiritual issues from being pressed home. We all hate this kind of exposure. And yet, ironically, it was the so-called safe ground of theological controversy that led to Jesus' self-disclosure and the woman's capitulation. He is the Messiah. He knows my heart. Despite all of her maneuvering, Jesus is determined to bring her to himself. And that should be a great comfort to us. If we're running away, if we're seeking to deflect the gospel, if we're seeking to stop our ears uh, to what God would say to us, if we're seeking to still the voice of conscience, Jesus does not give up. And we see Uh, this woman, uh, recognizing that nothing can prevent Jesus from achieving his purpose of grace in her life. And by persevering with one woman whom society had discarded and devalued, Jesus not only transformed her life, but fashioned her into an instrument of blessing to her neighbors. Come see a man that has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Come and see. Find out for yourselves. The world wants to portray Jesus as a bit of a damp squib. But he really does operate like a heat-seeking missile whose goal is not to destroy our lives, but to recreate them. 
He isn't the cuddly household pet that some uh, seek to describe. He is the hound of heaven who graciously pursues us till he brings us to that point of capitulation, of willing, glad surrender, reconciled to God. And as such, we are no longer aliens and strangers, but family members, adopted children of God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, we thank you not only for your word, but for the way in which it speaks to our hearts. We thank you for a Jesus who does not meet with us arbitrarily or accidentally, but one whose designs of grace uh, lock into our lives. And even despite at times our best attempts to uh, run from him and silence his voice, he doggedly pursues us and brings us to a place of willing, glad surrender. Help us to stand in awe of him who has placed such value upon us, who is eager to make us his very own, who has paid the ultimate price for our reconciliation. Receive our worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Dot .org Thanks for listening.